0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I am joining you today with a very special podcast, the first in a series of podcasts where we look at the new world which Europe will be inheriting after the 20th of January and how Europeans should define their interests and their policies to take into account the changes which Donald Trump will be wreaking in each theatre of its interests. The first discussion will be on the Middle East, and there we have a huge number of changes which people are going to have to digest in the months ahead. On Syria, Donald Trump has made it clear that he no longer wants to support the opposition and uh, will concentrate on ISIS, leaving the regional dynamics to the Russians, the Turks, the Iranians and other people to determine what does that mean for, for European interests? What kind of relations can we forge in the wake of that? Secondly, the Iran nuclear deal, one of the huge successes of European diplomacy over the last decade, is something that Donald Trump has expressed huge scepticism about. Will the Iran nuclear deal survive? What can Europeans do to save it? And thirdly... We will be looking at Israel Palestine, one of the evergreen topics of European foreign policy making. The support for the two state solution has been a centerpiece of European policy since the early 1980s. But Donald Trump has expressed great skepticism about that, has talked about moving the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and has all but indicated that America will be out of the peace process business. What does that mean for Europeans as well? To help me make sense of those three sets of questions, we have three amazing experts. First up in her first appearance on the podcast is Ruth Citrin, who is the new director of ECFR's Middle East and North Africa program. She is a senior policy fellow who comes to us from Washington, where she's served for many years in different American administrations, most recently in the White House and the State Department. And she was specialising particularly on Syria, but has worked on many other regional issues as well. Second up is Ellie Garenmeyer, meyer who leads ECFR's work on Iran, looking not just at the nuclear file, but also at wider regional dynamics. And finally, we have Hugh Lovett, who is a policy fellow who has led our work on Israel-Palestine and has done some pioneering work on the idea of differentiation, which I'm sure we will be discussing later, looking at how the EU should treat the occupied territories differently from Israel proper in its trade and other relations with that part of the world. So Ruth, maybe you can start, I know you've worked on on, mainly on Syria for the last decade, so I'm sure we'll go into that in greater depth, but maybe we can start by looking at the big picture. How do you see uh, Donald Trump's election changing American foreign policy, which has actually already been going through a big change during the Obama administration. I mean, how much of this is about accelerating things which are already underway and what is going to be a genuine discontinuity? And what does it mean for Europe?
1: Thank you, Mark. Um, I think it might make sense because these three issues, uh, the Iran nuclear deal, the two-state solution in Israel and Palestine, and the conflict in Syria are so dependent on where the U.S. goes in terms of its stance, I think a caution is important at the outset, which is we've heard very dramatic statements from um, President-elect Trump during the campaign and during his transition. We've heard statements from his nominees and the transition team during this uh, period leading up to the inauguration. But we don't quite yet know what the stance will be on these key, on these critical issues it could be a dramatic shift um, such as on the the embassy in Jerusalem or the Iran nuclear deal it could be some have speculated a withdrawal from that its stance on Syria and support for the opposition but it, that's all remains somewhat speculative at the moment i think the important thing to identify and i will Uh, let Hugh and Ellie sort of go into greater depth on Israel, Palestine, and Iran, looking at the Syria component of this, I think the important thing to recognize is that there is one thing that the um, incoming administration has been very clear about, and that's the focus on ISIL. And that will probably dominate um, its approach to issues like Syria and Iraq. And for Europe going into this on all three issues, before I go a little bit further into the um, the Syria issue. It's going to be a moment of figuring out how, in these intervening months, as the administration gets up and running, appoints its um, officials – the lead officials that handle each of these issues, what the messaging will be to both safeguard um, Europe's interests in preserving the Iran deal, in making sure there is space for a two-state solution, and figuring out a way to get toward a a meaningful transition, though our expectations on that have to be adjusted given recent events on the ground, there is a period of uh, messaging to the United States about the importance of these issues and to the key uh, external actors in the region, and here spe- specifically Russia, um, and figuring out how you work with Turkey on some of these issues. Now I'll move for a moment toward the Syria issue. That's in a a, mom- a period of uh, flux, I mean the, the, the regime's recapture of Aleppo with Russian and, and Iranian And Hezbollah help was a major step forward for the regime that puts the Assad regime in its strongest position since the conflict began, and one would argue in a position to really reassert its role um, and essentially take off the table for the foreseeable future Assad's departure. So Europe needs to think about how it continues to push for a transition, a political uh, reform and transition that creates a viable future syria because one should assume that the assad regime will continue to push and its allies you know with the iranians will continue to push toward recapture of all areas held by still held by the opposition europe should ask itself how it puts weight and influence on russia and on the turks to ensure that the cessation of hostilities as they had negotiated in late december and the astana Um, discussions that are supposed to take place in January – on January 23rd.
0: So these discussions between Russia and Turkey and Iran on the future of – with no Western powers at the table?
1: That discussion will include um, Russia, Turkey, and Iran. It will include elements of the Syrian opposition, though they're balking at the moment. It will include the Syrian regime, and it will be mostly focused on, at this point, um, trying to solidify the ceasefire and it would, should, should theoretically lead to, and Stefan Di Mistura has um, talked about this publicly. Um,
0: He's the UN, UN, spe-
1: UN Special Envoy, should convene on February 8th, I believe the UN is planning, uh, another round of negotiations between the Syrian opposition and the regime.
0: And what, what are those negotiations going to be about nominally?
1: Thank you, Mark. Um, <laughs> yeah. They should be a continuation of, in theory, discussions about a viable political transition based on the 2012 Geneva communique. Now, we've had – there's been difficulty trying to get the parties to the table for meaningful discussions since the last round in 2014. But the loss of Aleppo might create a moment in which this is possible, and Europe's voice can help reinforce the point that you need to have as inclusive a dialogue as possible, and that it needs to be preceded by as as respect for the ceasefire, delivery of humanitarian assistance. Now, these have been traditional points for for European states, but right now it's important to be very clear in messaging to Russia that it has assumed a leadership role. The Turks have assumed a leadership role in trying to push this process forward. You note know, correctly. Note that United States and Europe won't be at the table in a, in the first round of this in a, in Astana, which is again mostly focused on the ceasefire. But if you're going to try to move it to a political track after the fall of Aleppo, uh, or the re- recapture of Aleppo by the regime, you have to make sure that you have an inclusive dialogue.
0: So the biggest change for Europe is that um, the U.S. is not just no longer the kind of biggest and most important actor on these things. It's actually completely absent. So if we want to have an impact on what's going on, we need to rethink our relationship with Russia and with Turkey and not to rely on the US as a, as a channel for, for influencing what's happening in Syria.
1: Until it determines what, whether and if it will reassert its uh, role or uh, some involvement in the process.
0: So that's a really fundamental change. Uh, and we also have a situation where the European agenda is very, very different from from the Russian uh, agenda, um, but it's also quite different from the Turkish agenda because Turkey is nominally on the other side from from Russia in that they have been trying to get rid of Assad for a long period of time, but their biggest priority is about the Kurdish issue and what happens along the border. I mean, to what extent can Europeans count on on Turkey? Uh, and Russia to take any of their interests into account, including questions to do with the flow of refugees, the humanitarian concerns that people had um, in, in uh, around Aleppo. I mean, we seem to be entering a really frightening period in terms of international norms and international law um, in Syria, as well as uh, the worries that many Europeans have just about the flow of people into into Europe.
1: You're, you're absolutely correct, Mark, in the sense that each of these parties, the Turks and the Russians, are pursuing their own aims, and those aims can sometimes be be at odds with what Europe would like to see. The Turks, um, which had long been strong supporters of the um, armed opposition in Syria, are really appear to be taking a position that is primarily focused on ensuring that they create a buffer Um, that prevents Syrian Kurds from connecting two cantons that they hold in northern Syria along Turkey's border. And Russia, looking at this sort of vacuum created in in, in recent months, is accommodating Turkey on this point. And Turkey, in turn, is signaling to the Russians its willingness to sort of maintain a focus on ISIL rather than on the Assad regime. Now, that puts Western states and other regional states in a bit of a conundrum in terms of wielding significant influence in order to press the Assad regime to take talk seriously. So the only option, perhaps, is really communicating to Russia. I mean, Russia and Turkey have taken a leadership role here. If they expect it to come to fruition, they are going to have to um, pursue an approach that, can bring the various parties along within Syria, bearing in mind, again, and this is an important point, that the landscape of the conflict you know, may have fundamentally shifted at least for the foreseeable future. You probably can't, um, there, there will be an ongoing insurgency, but the fighting on the ground is trending in the regime's favor. And so Russia will be looking for a certain amount of flexibility from the international community on what a transition period, in quotes, would look like. And that would look far more like Assad and his cronies staying in power and having a greater role in shaping it than Europe might have originally been advocating.
0: Julian Barnes-Dacey has been on this podcast a lot and has talked about the the need to try and decentralize power. So if you can't have a national political transition, are there ways of actually bringing a bit more order and Governability to Syria by looking at decentralizing power in different ways. To what extent is that even that possible, given how much success the Assad regime is having militarily with its with the support from the Russians and, and Iran and Hezbollah and others?
1: I think where, where your focus might need to, um, where Europe's focus might need to be, is on the areas that have essentially come to agreement on a cessation of hostilities with the regime. It's likely, it's, it's going to be difficult to um, halt the regime's likely pressure around Damascus. It's going to be difficult to halt its pressure on, future pressure on areas such as Idlib. But there have been the areas recently sort of overtaken by the regime where the parties that are there, the opposition parties are there, are still the actors on the ground. But there have to be certain accommodations made if a cessation is to hold. And I think that may be the only Opening in the near term in, in terms of devolving authority uh, to a certain point to the local level, this will be very difficult for the regime to accept because this is not its you know modus operandi. But this is where what Europe should be pushing for if we lo- want to look toward longer-term stability for the country.
0: So, if that's what Europeans are pushing for, should be pushing for. Maybe before we um, move on to Iran, um, what are Europe's tools? I mean, how many divisions does
1: <laughs> does Europe have? <laughs>
0: Which it can deploy behind those demands.
1: Well, by divisions, I presume you mean military. And I, I meant d-
0: metaphorically. I don't <laughs> think there could be many divisions actually deployed in Syria. Um, but what what cards can Europeans play?
1: The cards are on the concepts of stabilization in post ISIL areas, uh, ISIL-held areas. It's money. It's assistance. It's support through the UN for a process of. Um, local devolution local arrangements so when you and say local governance. For the
0: UN it's, what, it's passing security council resolutions or
1: what No, I think it's it? working i tr- I mean working through uh, Stefan De Mistura and right. trying to put together a more comprehensive picture in those areas that are under cessation provided and this is where Astana is important provided you get the cessation to hold to a greater degree. Okay. Um
0: so all in all um the kind of summary on Syria is that um, we can't expect anything uh, very much from the U.S. in the short term. On, And then in the longer term, it's probably going to be ISIL rather than uh, anything else that, that matters um, in terms of the, the priorities. Um, and Europeans should work on strengthening the desire of the Turks and the Russians to have a real political transition by offering some money and UN <laughs> support. <laughs> OK, um, does Iran look any better
2: well iran is a iran also plays into the syria game and also the the russia dynamic uh, but maybe and and it's also interlinked in my opinion uh, with with the nuclear deal if if the nuclear deal starts to go south uh, i think we're going to start seeing a lot um, more confrontational behavior from iranian forces based in iraq or syria or lebanon elsewhere so that's something to be aware of and also another another interlink with russia there is that russia is one of the key backers of this nuclear deal uh it's it it invested a lot of political capital and also shared actually european and american concerns about iran's nuclear program to a large extent now where we go in terms of in a in a trump world
0: yeah i mean i think we should maybe just start with the the deal which was this kind of huge um success for over a decade's worth of european diplomacy First of all, getting Europeans on the same page about the Middle East after the divisions of the Iraq War, then gradually persuading the Bush administration not to use military power to to defang Iran's nuclear program, but in fact to support diplomacy, and then eventually getting the Russians and the Chinese on board behind some quite tough sanctions, which led to these extraordinary um, deals which which, uh, President Obama went to great lengths to... to to protect both uh, against um, some of uh, his allies in Saudi Arabia and Israel, but also uh, maybe more importantly, against the activism of Congress that was was trying to throw spanners in the works throughout. I mean, how, what do you think um, is going to happen when uh, President Obama leaves? What are the biggest threats to the deal?
2: Well, I I laid out some ideas in a in a New York Times piece in November on on what options are, and you know I said let's focus on on Trump, what he personally has said about the deal, which which were not exactly. Um, sure. At the moment, he, he since November, he's only really mentioned Iran once in, in a speech. Uh, Iran hasn't featured in his top priority foreign policy issues. It's been trade, ISIS, uh, Russia, China. Um, so that is in itself a good thing that Iran doesn't seem to be on the top list of. He right has uh,
0: said this is the worst. What was the exact He place? said this is a the disastrous deal. deal. No, him but
2: himself. this was before. This was before <laughs> the election, and and we know. Uh, we know that some sober intelligence briefings tend to change people's minds about this and actually a second point that that we need to be watching for is a type of people that are advising him on on the Iran deal and um, which includes the like of uh, CIA nominee head uh, Pompeo Mark Pompeo who uh, on the day of his nomination, uh, essentially tweeted that uh, he looks forward to un- un- unravelling the nuclear deal. But since then, interestingly, this week in his Senate hearings, he's, he's kind of gone back on that position and said look, I made some statements when I was a senator, now actually the the picture looks a little bit different. We've also had actually um, little talk of Iran in in Tillerson, who's who's the nominee for Secretary of State um, hearings. And we've also had little talk from um, General Matisse on the issue. So those are actually, from for me, listening to the hearing so far, I've, I'm a little bit more optimistic okay. than I was in November about the deal, but...
0: You're relativising the, the, your, your fears, but it might be worth... I mean, as well as Trump's statement himself, you know, Mike Flynn, his national security advisor, has written uh, an entire book about how mm. evil Iran is and, and has been very critical of, of, of the deal. But there, also, I think... Um, Regardless of what uh, Trump actively does, there's also been an, an enormous amount that Congress has yeah. been doing over the over the years. To I mean, it might be worth kind of looking at that, as well as just the active ways that that um, President Obama has has been sure. kind of supporting the deal, like through. Waivers and things like that. Yeah, do you, do you yeah. Know? So there's the yeah. three
2: important things about assessing the U.S. dynamic on Iran. Yeah. It's going to be what Trump does, what the people around him do, and advise him, and what Congress does. Now, uh, Congress is now in Republican majority hands. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go after killing the deal directly because. Once they break the deal, they're going to have to own the consequences of breaking that deal, which is likely to include um, isolation of the United States within the E3 plus three framework, an um, an inability to bring back the international commitment to sanctions against Iran, uh, and it's not and and also really opening up the Pandora's box in terms of what comes next. The problem is that when you speak to members of Congress, which I have also done, when you outline the effectiveness of the deal in blocking Iran's ability to get a nuclear weapon and asking them look what's your alternative that's when really the conversation stops with them so it's going to be uh, it's going to actually have to be partly also a european burden to to outline the positives of the deal uh, to members of congress and the next trump administration which are our allies and um, in any case and also outline look if you're going to break this deal what's your alternative now i think what congress may do uh, is try and pass legislation that tries to kill the deal by a thousand cuts. That means not trying to serve a death blow to the deal, but creating a sanctions framework which fudges around the edges of U.S. obligations under the deal and actually in some ways could have impact on European companies that are trying to take advantage of this economic opening with Iran. Under that scenario, I think A, the Iranians are going to start really complaining to the Europeans and, and the Joint Commission set up under the deal that these are violations of the of the nuclear deal. But also in that scenario, it puts Europeans in a difficult state because if, if Congress is trying to kill the deal by a thousand cuts rather than a clear cut violation, uh, Europeans are gonna be in a bit of a dilemma about wh- whose side they're gonna be taking.
0: Yeah. So, um ruth you you were working um in the u.s administration while a lot of these things were going on i heard that there were as many as 80 um bills since the deal was put in uh, put into congress calling for 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 different kinds of sanctions around other non-nuclear issues Mm. ballistic missiles human rights iran's regional activities if obama's obviously vetoed all of the things that have have come through but if, if Um, Trump decides not to veto those things that will kind of make a big difference. But the other angle was was um, the 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 way that the president has created waivers for uh, to try and make it possible for for uh, companies Mm -hmm. to have economic relations with Iran without having um, uh, sanctions consequences. Trump, all he has to do is not introduce those waivers and, and he won't necessarily be uh, in breach of... Uh, he won't be actively killing the deal. No, but he will but, be. Yeah.
2: That is an active breach. Under, under the nuclear deal, the US has to uh, provide certain sanctions easing, which includes the type of sanctions that have hamstrung European companies against doing business with Iran in the last four years. So not renewing those waivers is a breach of the deal. That's a clear-cut okay. violation.
0: So the the death by the thousand cuts is just not That's blocking the it's not yeah. blocking what Congress does. But I mean, how, how likely do you think it is that Congress will bring these things in and because there isn't much of a constituency for Iran in Congress or in fact anywhere in the U.S. I think the um,
1: the waiver it, the waivers problem arises automatically. I mean, there they were renewed on December fifteenth, so there was one hundred and twenty days that would have they'd have to be within which they'd have to be renewed again.
0: So the next. Uh, decision point is in March sometime.
2: It's it's it depends because Obama may right before leaving office renew them again, which expands their lifeline. But no, I mean Trump will have to within yeah within the next six yeah, months, the the next six months he's going to have to renew. But I mean that I don't think mm. there's going to be that degree of irrationality to kill the deal in that way. It's going to be whether Congress starts to create. Um, sanctions which are perhaps not related to the nuclear issues right. as you say ballistic missiles human rights. And the terrorism. hope there
0: is that they'll provoke Iran to then stop uh, implementing its side of the deal because they'll say ah you're in breach both of the spirit and the letter, or at least in, the, in of the spirit if not the letter of the deal so therefore we'll retaliate and you can end up with a exactly. kind of escalation.
2: Yeah yeah and that's where I think the European role is going to be very very critical. One thing we have to remember is the type of channels of communications that we had with Kerry and Zarif, with the energy ministers of both countries, is now really going to slow down and uh, and possibly even eradicate. And this is where we've seen already this week people like Helga Schmidt, the EU Secretary General, stepping up to the plate and starting to really solidify the channels of communications with high-level Iranian officials to bridge this potential gap that we may see. So the
0: first thing Europeans need to do is to tell the Iranians don't be the ones who kill this deal. We'll kind of stand by you as long as you stay uh, within your obligations, we're not going to introduce any sanctions. We'll protect you. We'll fight against uh, the U.S. administration for you. What, what else? And can also, you do?
2: not just uh, on the nuclear issue, but don't provoke the United States into having to react uh, to certain right. issues. For example, and how's in- that going?
0: Because Iran was obviously doing lots of test missile tests um, over the last few months, which which kind of did play into the hands of hardliners in Americans.
2: Yes, that did. But actually, there is a U.N. report coming out very soon, actually on Monday, which lays out that since July, there hasn't been any reported uh, ballistic missiles. So it seems that the message has somehow been delivered to Iran on that front. But also things like incidents in the Persian Gulf, we've had quite a number of them between U.S. uh, naval forces and Iranian uh, naval forces. If 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 these continue on into a Trump administration, uh, I'm not confident that you'll have the same uh, degree of diffused quick uh, responses from both sides. And and that would actually bring Iran into a number one security threat in the U.S. debate, which we know right now it's not. So don't provoke on the regional front okay. behavior. And, and, and thirdly, also... Um, make sure that um, you are uh, you are also at home uh, to undertaking reforms that will allow European companies to come and invest in Iran.
0: That's what we should be saying to the Iranians. Yes. And what else can Europeans do themselves to, for example, if there is this sort of breakdown between the, the US and Iran and the US either cancels the deal or starts introducing sanctions in different areas, to what extent is there space for Europeans to do anything about it, given how much extraterritorial reach American sanctions have? I mean, if uh, the financial system is weaponized in that way, people have, you know, a lot of European banks need to do transactions in dollars. They're not gonna want to take the risks Mm. for, for, for getting involved in that, which could mean that even if Europeans don't have sanctions against Iran, there won't be much economic activity
2: so that's really where the political commitment of particularly the E3 and the European Union kicks E3 is in
0: britain france and germany britain yeah for, yeah, for now uh, <laughs> I, I,
2: and 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 this is really they're going to be posed with the question if iran is abiding by its nuclear commitments and you have russia and china on board with the deal will the european union uh and and the european member states follow a independent foreign policy to the u.s uh congress
0: Uh, what uh, can they do
2: well okay so we've had first of all the sanctions on iran are unprecedented it's a it's a new case and switching them off has proven to be more difficult than expected um so part of this is a new exercise for for europeans um on on sanctions easing But we have a precedent, not exactly the same, but very similar back in the 90s, where you had sanctions on Libya, Cuba, and Iran, which really uh, had a hard effect on European energy companies. In that time, European member states governments actually created legislation, uh, threatened to take the United States to the WTO, and that political pressure actually made folks like the Clinton administration Stop the enforcement of U.S. Uh, extraterritorial yeah. sanctions. You had a
0: similar thing on the Helms-Burton Act, but exactly. I think that's different from the financial sanctions, which, no, no, no. which are much more crippling to the whole, uh, to all of economic activity. Though. Yes,
2: that's true, but there are there are other ways to explore. For example, are there measures that European governments can take in financing trade uh, and investment with Iran through their own sovereign wealth funds, through export credit facilities that that try and isolate it from the u s dollar system okay
0: the final thing before we move on to the two state solution is uh, you know you talked a lot about Europe, but one of the big questions because this was a, a kind of joint project by Britain France, and Germany are is there going to be a Europe there or is Britain going to think that they need to uh, have curry favor with the Trump administration because of brexit because they want a trade deal might they deprioritize Iran in order to uh, Curry favour on other issues.
2: Well, we, we may see the, the Brits being more a in terms of how the deal is enforced and pressuring Iran more so than it has already in terms of its nuclear-related obligations. But I don't see what other choice the Brits have in terms of containing the Iranian nuclear program than the current deal. Um, so if they are going to take that course, it's going to be the job of the of the remaining. Uh, and it's not just going to be, by the way, the E3 and the EU, it's going to be Russia and China that are going to have to take up yeah. uh, an active role in, uh, in that process. I was
0: speaking to a French official the other day, so maybe we should change the E3 because we can't trust the Brits anymore and bring <laughs> the Italians um, in. But we'll see, we'll see what happens. But uh, I'm sure we'll come back to, to that, as indeed we will on the Syrian question. But why don't we pivot to the oldest... <laughs> A source of instability well maybe not the oldest but w- one of the the perennial topics when it comes to Middle Eastern security which is Israel-Palestine and the idea of the two-state solution uh, most people think that it's been uh, on life support at best for a, for a very long time the idea of a two-state solution but if Trump uh, does move the embassy to Jerusalem uh, will that mean that it that the tubes are being pulled out and that um, it will no longer be on life support it will just be dead? Hugh? So I think
3: it's important to um, to make a distinction between the two-state solution uh, and the Middle East peace process at least how it's figured under the Oslo agreements and I think that 2017 will be the year in which the Middle East peace process is recognized to be dead. I would argue that has been the case for a while, but the ability of the Middle East peace process to uh, resolve the conflict that's long since disappeared. Um, but even the ability of the Middle East peace process to uh, manage the conflict and to try to at least you know, reduce levels of, of tension and violence have, I think has been shown to be increasingly difficult. Like an old car, you think you, you hope you'll get a few more kilometers out of it, but at some point you know the engine will break down. But in terms of the two state solution, I think it's something which is still very much supported by a majority of Palestinians on the ground. This idea of, you know, of uh, Palestinian sovereignty and Palestinian statehood. And at the moment, I don't
0: see a critical mass amongst Palestinians to move to uh, a one state solution. So one state solution is the idea that um, they should just have democratic rights in Israel and that they should use the political process and demographic change within Israel to um, to stop it being a jewish state is that what you mean by yeah so
3: and i think you know one also has to be, to be quite clear in that you know even uh, within israel itself um palestinian israelis that make up 20 percent of the population um you know argue that they don't actually in practice uh, receive uh full rights and um, and there are obviously um uh, items of legislation that are going through the knesset which tries to which would seek to put the, the jewish character of israel before its democratic character so you know, I think in the if current trends continue, you know, I don't think it's an option between one-state solution or two-state solution. The option is between a two-state solution and an end to occupation and the fulfilment of the of Palestinian people's right to self-determination, or the alternative is a continuation of Israel's prolonged occupation and annexation of uh, Palestinian territory. And but to a certain extent, I think this conversation about you know, one-state, two-state. Um it kind of it, at the moment, I think it 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 misses the the more important thing, which is in terms of how one actually effectively deals with what is happening on the ground at the moment in the current reality. And this is something that uh, Secretary Kerry also has talked about um, in his speech he gave in December following the UN Security Council resolution and Ob- President Obama himself has also talked a bit about this that you know that the current trajectory in which things are going is in terms of. Uh, an encroaching, I would call it a one space reality. Uh, Secretary, called it, Secretary Kerry called it a one space reality. Yeah. What does that mean? So Secretary Kerry called it a one state reality. But, you know, under international law, we do not recognize Israeli sovereignty over uh, the occupied territories. And so I think, you know, calling a one state reality, perhaps mis- uh, risks misconstruing what it is that, you know, I think the international community must Uh, continue to uphold the occupied nature of the Palestinian territories and this means continuing to uphold the the relevancy of international law which if properly uh, applied uh, can guarantee effective protections to the Palestinian population and it can also help um, disincentivize Israel's uh, illegal acquisition of territory and actually make the occupation uh, more unsustainable for for Israel.
0: So that's definitely something that the successive European uh, actions have been trying to do so you know this idea of differentiation we talked about before which you um, and colleagues at the CFR have been pushing for a long time is, is that legally one should treat the the two things differently and you shouldn't treat products from the occupied territories in the same way that you treat Israeli products and that you could take that further and I think you uh, one of your reports caused the fall in the in, in Israeli bank shares when you kind of looked at whether there should be action against uh, Israeli banks who are giving mortgages to people to to, to build settlements essentially. Um, but uh, uh, so let's come to what the EU can do a bit later on. But I'm just trying to unpack the the, the American situation a bit more because what you, where you started was was this idea of the two state. Uh, sorry, the peace process. And that was the kind of core idea that that you would have this sort of external honest broker in the form of the United States that would act as a guarantor for a two-state solution and help bring the shepherd the two sides along. And we've seen this kind of extraordinary track record of failure from successive administrations um, with uh, people, uh, lo- you know, having less and less faith that anything was likely to happen. And, and that kind of reached... I think it's tragic finale with with Kerry's uh dismal failure to 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 move things forward um after a huge amount of of time and effort spent on on it. Um by shifting the embassy to Jerusalem, Trump is saying that they're out of the peace process business for for good and that means I think what we kind of probably already knew that it's going to be an endogenous thing rather than something which is going to be driven by external forces. And it, it, is that right?
3: I think on the, the US side of things first, you know, so if they do follow through uh, and move the, uh, the embassy to Jerusalem, you know, I think this is the beginning of, of you know, pulling that string, that piece of string that will start to unravel long-held international policy positions um, that have underpinned our approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and, and the two-state solution. And perhaps the, the moving on the embassy will not actually ultimately be the most egregious of what may either by neglect or design come out of D.C. in the, in the coming years. So what would, what would be worse? Um, so we're seeing a number of, um, of bills currently going through Congress, which seeks to legitimize Israel's hold um, over the West Bank or the settlements by you know, conflating the settlements and Israel. Uh, we've also but seen. How, what does that mean? Sorry. So for people. Who... Uh, so it means that. Um, so it's the opposite of what we what we've been talking about. It's the opposite of differentiation. So it's basically to say, in the U.S.'s eyes, uh, we don't. We no longer hold uh, the the policy positions that we've that we've uh, promoted over the last decades, in which we see uh, that the nineteen sixty seven line should form the basis of a future Palestinian state. It basically says that the settlements. Uh, and that those areas under Israel's control, we recognize as a part of Israel. And what it means is, um, you know, it started as a way to try to push back against what's called the uh, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement, the PDS movement. But it's been basically uh, expanded uh, to also encompass basically EU policy, which seeks to, to defend the relevancy of the 1967 Green Line, and that seeks to make a, different, a difference uh, or differentiation between Israel and the territories
0: that it occupies, um, but the other thing, it, but um, having some language on that in a congressional bill, how does that have well, any effect on what the EU's do?
3: So up until now, um, these bills have you know been nothing more really than words, because you had a uh, President Obama that would not actually operationalize it or give it any effect, um, and there's a few times where uh, there was a, a bill that was setting the the negotiating priorities. Uh, for the U.S. when they were negotiating the TTIP agreement with the EU, and one of the priorities was to uh, disincentivize EU policy on the settlements. And when o- President Obama had signed this legislation, he explicitly added a caveat that that would not be basically enforced. And so it comes back to the Iran stuff: is you know if you have a president that's prepared to kind of to block this stuff, then it has no effect. Mm. If you have a president that's actually willing to let this through, mm. um, then it's not. It's more than just symbolic. Uh, it, it can even have an impact on, on the EU and even on European businesses that seek to uphold uh, international law in their
0: dealings, which can now be the target of uh, US actions. But how can... Sorry, I don't understand how the businesses will be targets for US actions.
3: So what we've, uh, what we've seen in the US, as I said, is a number of legislative attempts to, uh, to counter the so-called uh, BDS movement. Yeah. Um, primarily, actually, where this has been happening is at the state level. And so we've seen a number of blacklists that have been drawn up, which basically says that uh, public uh, or publicly funded bodies or state uh, bodies um, are not allowed to engage in any uh, business with these European companies.
0: We've seen also, uh, I think now it's at 19 states. How do you know if countries don't invest in Israel, that's not an active thing, is it? I mean, it's a <laughs> well, yeah, and like, th- there's no law that says you have to invest in Israel. So how could you punish companies for not investing in Israel? I think that shows the the lack of methodology and, <laughs> and thought that went into
3: this. And I think when you look at the list, basically it was a Google search of, of news stories that link these groups, but also what it does again is it confuses um, what I would call politically motivated boycotts, which is the BDS movement. It confuses that with uh, legal necessity, with the fact that you know companies have, again, and this is the UN Security Council resolution in December also basically, Points to this that you know that under international law you have a, a duty to ensure that your actions don't um, facilitate Israel's unlawful practices. So I think you know this is an area where companies will just say you know we're doing what we're supposed to do, but the the U.S. legislation seeks to misinterpret this. But the other thing I did want to say about you know the third thing of U.S. action which could be problematic is you know is giving a free hand. Um, to Israel's settlement expansion and settlement activity, and perhaps even you know uh, recognizing uh, Israel's sovereignty or Israel's uh, right to the settlements, yeah. which would be a major departure from uh, from the basis in which we hope to negotiate a final status solution.
0: So, final question then is what What do you think Europeans can do about it? So, I think there's a lot that e-
3: the EU can do and a lot of tools. The question is whether it's prepared to to use them. Um, so, one needs to acknowledge that ultimately the occupation will only end when the Israeli uh, public decides that it's in their best interest to end it. And at the moment, uh, still the, the overall overwhelming weight is very much geared towards continuing the status quo because it's felt that it's not a priority to end the occupation and there's no urgency. So EU action really should, should try to, to examine how to chip away at this cost-benefit structure that underpins the Israeli support for the occupation. And you can do this by uh, the full and effective implementation of the EU's own laws uh, through this idea of you know, differentiation. Um, this is, on one hand, the EU respecting its own laws, but also it has a normative value in which, um, in many cases, Israel is compelled to, to enact its own differentiation, uh, its own internal differentiation, in order to continue accessing those parts of its relations with the EU that it really values. And when, the, when this has happened, we've seen the beginning of a really uh, important debate within Israel about um, the price of its continued settlement activities and, and basically highlighting the contradiction between deepening the settlements and deepening relations with the EU. So I think this is like, this is the most important thing and this in itself can, can help to, um, to defend the territorial basis of the two-state
0: solution as a, as a future outcome. Okay, so um, we've covered a a huge amount of uh, ground there, and I think, as Ruth said at the beginning, it's still pretty unclear exactly which ideas that have been aired during the campaign season will find a concrete expression in administration policies. Though one of the big lessons from this, I think, is that Congress is going to be maybe a more important actor than the administration on a lot of these areas. Okay, so we've had a fascinating discussion. I let it go way, but beyond the thirty minutes um, because uh, there was so much ground to cover. We do have one more thing to do, which you should probably do super quickly, which is our bookshelf segment. Uh, Ruth, what's on your bookshelf at the moment?
1: Well, I'll say very quickly that you're asking me that question at an unusual moment because I my bookshelves are empty. Everything is moved in the process of being moved from the United States to England. I grabbed one book. Uh, to read for us a bit of escape uh, en route, and that was All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Dorr, which is essentially it's, it's a piece of fiction. It's about World War II and about two youths in um, different circumstances, one a, a young blind girl in France and another a young uh, orphan um, or young, a, young, a young boy in Germany, and how they, their lives intersect by the end of this novel in terms of their, uh, how World War II impacts them. Ali, what's on your bookshelf? Um, I'm in the middle of reading
2: Children of the Ali by Naguib Mahfouz, an Egyptian uh, author who won a Nobel uh, Prize for this book. It was published in the 60s banned for some time, uh, it, it looks at the concept of strongman uh, in, 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 in this uh, fictional story, but it kind of reflected the story of the Middle East, and it very much reflects the stories today that we hear. So I'm very much enjoying that book, but it's a little bit too close to work, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> what about you, Hugh? Um,
3: so I think I'm going to stay very close to work. It's not yet on my bookshelf, it's coming out in February. It's a book by Ayel Gross who's a professor of law at Tel Aviv University, basically exploring uh, the different uh, international legal frameworks that can be brought into play in a situation of prolonged occupation, which also um, fits with work that we've uh, initiated at UCFR.
0: Great. And I've been uh, reading a uh, report by uh, Deutsche Asset Management about the backlash (laughs) against globalisation. It's basically looking at whether uh the world is going through a similar kind of period to where we were after world war one where uh the authors kind of look at globalization not as something which goes in a straight line but goes through cycles and uh they have a huge amount of data on the sort of slowdown of different types of globalization and, and a lot of the political dynamics and uh put it in this kind of bigger historical context so that brings this discussion to an end we're going to come back to all of these things I'm sure many times over the the next year our next uh, podcast will be looking at the new world that we're facing in eastern uh, Europe in our relations with Russia and Turkey and the crisis of the European order um, and how Trump's election uh, impacts on that but before then um please do let us know what you thought of this podcast give us a review or a ranking on itunes or soundcloud or mixcloud or stitcher or whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast on do write to me at mark.leonard.ecfr.eu if you have any suggestions or comments on on this podcast and uh, let your friends know about it on facebook on our facebook page on twitter And uh, we'll join you next week. But for now, from Ruth Citrin, Ellie Gerenmeyer, Hugh Lovett, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke, and our editor is Bouline Goemin.